Hi, welcome to Tabs Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Savon Springer. Savon is the founder and host of Native Assets. And today we're talking about crypto. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Savon, welcome back to the show. What's going on with you, Joe, man? Thank you for inviting me back on, man. It's, it's an honor. You know, sometimes guests come through and you only want to have them one time. So uh, to, to, to be on here twice, man, I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, of course. It's a, it's our privilege to have you on. Um, last time you were on, we talked about blockchain. We sort of discussed the technology behind crypto. And I know you mentioned, you said, you know, I'll be your crypto guy. And I was mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's yeah. amazing. So, you know, last time we were on Bitcoins, you know, floating between 30, 40K. <laughs> you got uh, the Miami Heat suiting up in the FTX arena. And you know everything is good, and now <laughs> yeah. here we are. It's a uh, it's a whole new world, and I know that you know you keep a keen eye on this industry. And I wonder if you could just sort of walk us through 2022. What happened in crypto? Because I think a lot of us who don't follow it as closely as you do are sort of lost. Yeah, no, no, no. Great way to to, to get it rolling. Well, I mean TLDR market cycles, right? And and I think that the most important thing, and it's funny, I, I, it kind of tickles me. When um, when people I speak with who, you know, spend more time looking at markets, but, you know, only really kind of look from the sidelines as far as crypto. And it usually starts with, oh, man, you know, you said it before we came on, like crypto's on the ropes. Like, you know, it's like, yes, full stop. Yes. But everything's on the ropes. You know, it's like how far down is Tesla? How far down is Amazon? How far down are all of these growth stocks risk on? mode is off and people are fleeing to safety. I'm sure you've already talked about this in your past episodes. So people are going to things that historically have been safe bets, albeit with low, relatively speaking, yields. So bonds, those sort of things, treasuries. Um, and when that happens, this is something I wish I would have seen or understood and respected far better was that pivot with the Fed, right? Now, there were some hints at it late last year. Um, and when this first came out, markets reacted, but then they bounced back because they hadn't done anything. And so once they started to push these rates up, you just see liquidity drain, man. You move from high risk to low risk because you got people not just playing around with 10,000, with 100,000, with a million. They're playing around with hundreds of billions. And when you're talking about half a percent or two percent, two and a half, three percent yield, and you got several billion dollars you're playing with, you're going to take that every time. You know, because you're like, hey, we, we, we could print some money for show for show. This way, we don't need to be in those high risk assets. So broadly speaking, that's what happened with crypto. You look at the risk curve, you have growth stocks, you know, you have a, a whole spectrum. And I'm not nearly as familiar in that world as you are. But the furthest thing you get to effectively is we get into crypto. Like it's probably safer to do the sort of investments where people are buying uh, limber or tumber, <laughs> tumber limber, uh, when they're buying timber as uh, buying forest and doing those kind of alternative investments is still less risky because the history there uh, than crypto is and Web3 and NFTs and all of that sort of stuff. So whatever's on the furthest end of the risk curve is what gets dumped the hardest, just like it's what pumps the hardest in the bull market. So that's really what's played out. And um, then you add on top of that, that, you know, there's been some systemic failures around some experiments. And that's what a lot of this stuff is right now, experiments. Uh, with the stable coins, the first one that collapsed was Terra Luna. That led to some contagion that took out a couple of the biggest uh, VC firms in the space, like uh, Three Arrows Capital is probably the most the most notable one. Um, 
And then, you know, that, that touched a few people. I got caught up in that a bit and, and it led to the rest of the market, you know, collapsing. And then you have a lot of margin calls on people. That basically happened to me. I tried to, I had to liquidate before I got margin call forcefully and uh, further. So then things kind of started to, um, to heal again for a while. And then a few months after that, FTX. And so uh, it's kind of like this real double whammy that basically happened from one, an experiment that was DeFi related fully uh, in the sense that it was a DeFi primitive that people were engaging with that failed. Um, and then on the other end, you had the other end of the spectrum, which was not at all in any way, shape, form DeFi related. It was entirely centralized and it was just pure fraud. Whereas at least in the first example, you can make the argument that it wasn't fraud, but more of a engineering failure. Uh, more of an e uh, economic and game theory failure, uh, even though I think in both situations there were bits of um, call them attacks or quasi attacks on a similar vein as like, you know, the, the confessions of an economic hitman. You come in, you find an opportunity, you exploit it and you take out your competition. So both those things happen, uh, which were kind of the things that got the most attention uh, in the space because negative attention gets the most attention and they're the things that hurt people the most. But uh, around all of that, aside from all of that, there were a lot of people building. Uh, there were a lot of projects, particularly more related to NFTs and Web3 things and less about cryptocurrencies themselves that have been flourishing. Uh, it was before the Luna collapse, but Yuga Labs, the most prominent uh, NFT project in the entire space, they did a raise at $450 million at a $4 billion valuation, I believe. Um, there's been several hundred billion dollar funds stood up. Uh, dedicated explicitly to gaming and metaverse. Uh, Dubai is where a lot of this is happening. So it's a lot of stuff going on. But um, yeah, hopefully that was a not too long little recap of, you know, really the, the kind of highs and lows. Yeah, for sure. It's been a wild ride, definitely a roller coaster throughout all the markets. And I got caught up in that pivot as well. I, you know, I saw the rates going up, but it, they were telling us that they everything was transitory and they thought that you know, it was going to be a temporary hike and inflation was going to cool. And of course, they were completely wrong. So it's so hard to know what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, crypto is just another universe of that and that nobody can predict the future. But um, I did want to ask you about the Ethereum merge because uh, oh, yes. some, something that happened with that, someone was telling me that after the, mo the merge, post-merge, Ethereum used much less energy for the mm -hmm. product. And I wasn't sure if you could maybe explain how that works, because I know one of the downfalls for crypto has been the energy usage and uh, how much it takes for mining and and whatnot. So maybe you could go into a little bit in depth detail on the on the merge, how that worked and, and whether you think that crypto is going to drain our energy grid moving forward. Yeah. So first off, no, I don't think it is. The thing that's interesting um, is that no one ever complains about how much energy Amazon uses. No one ever complains about how much energy goes to AWS, to Google Cloud, to Google Compute. No one mm -hmm. complains about the energy that they use in um, in China and these factories near Foxconn, where they build all these phones or all of that. No one complains about the energy required to mine rare earth minerals that go into building these batteries for these electric vehicles that winds up being more destructive, quote unquote, to the environment than it is uh, a solution to it. So it's all about narrative. Uh, and that's not me saying that we don't need to be mindful about our energy consumption. Um, but as we were kind of talking about, as I alluded to a moment ago, there are solutions to energy abundance, but it's a matter of when they're going to let these things they view and what really fits the narrative and what makes the money. Um, and the reality is, yes, 
a lot of these things in the space, GPU mining um, being the primary example, they are energy intensive, but relative to what? And when you compare them, relatively speaking, to a lot of these things other people do that are part of our society, they're, they're, they're nowhere near close. So a lot of it has to do with the narrative. Um, regardless, if you can reduce the amount of energy that's required, that's probably a good thing. And so when the merge took place, uh, basically it was a transition to say, hey, instead of people needing to put up GPU miners, which are very energy intensive, um, we're going to make it where you basically need to put up Ethereum in and of itself and stake it and uh, kind of lock it up. And that will be what drives the, the the security of the network. And it's not a perfect system either. There's a really good debate or a conversation off the podcast, What Bitcoin Did, I believe is the name. It was either What Bitcoin Did or Bankless, but it was between Lynn Alden and one other person whose name I cannot remember right now. But it was basically like a whole discussion back and forth about like, hey, what are the pros and cons? Is proof of stake actually better than proof of work? I would highly recommend anybody interested to check it out because far more articulate on it than I am. But basically what's going on now is that um, for as far as reduction in energy, the estimation is about you know 95 to 99% um, more efficient than it was prior. And the other interesting thing about it is how it affected the, how it affects the economics of Ethereum. Whereas um, prior to, you know, it's, a, it's an inflationary asset, but after the transition to proof of stake in combination with the transition uh, that happened with EIP-1559, which had to do with how the fees are paid out to miners for each block, um, it actually, there are moments where activity, if it's high enough, right, and the usage in the network is still up, but it's still down compared to the highs of the bull market, there have been moments where ETH has been a deflationary asset. And so um, there's this framework called the... Um, Basically, it's it's this framework of viewing Ethereum as a three-class, a three-tiered asset. So viewing Ethereum as money, viewing it as a uh, commodity, and then viewing it as, um, as damn, I'm forgetting the thorough right now. I hate when I reference things and I, I can't convey it in its, its fullness. <laughs> yeah, no problem. But, um, yeah, it's basically people to look at it as like, is it ultrasound money? But uh, that's another thing to, to, to look up and dive into, so. Yeah. yeah and, and I've noticed one thing I've noticed this year as the bull market has kind of slowed down is a lot of people are sort of transitioning. And I, I'm sure this was their perception of the space to start with. It's just gotten louder. And it's that Bitcoin is separate from crypto. A lot of people say, well, you know, I'm I'm pro Bitcoin, but I don't like other cryptos. And mm -hmm. it seems like the Bitcoiners themselves are all sort of emboldened to say that we only like Bitcoin and nothing else. And, and that's including Ethereum and everything else. And I wonder what, what your thoughts are on that. So I understand that position. And I'm not going to say if anyone was, were to have an extreme position, that's an understandable one. Now, also, I feel like the opposite is an extreme position. One where it's like the only thing worth value is Ethereum and nothing else has value. So they're both two extreme positions, but I, I understand the arguments. I feel like I understand the arguments and the rationale behind both. Now, the, the the pure rationale behind Bitcoin being the main thing is one, how it came to be, you know, and there's this kind of um, joke about it being immaculately conceived versus everything else because there was no sale. And there are very few, if not any other tokens that came into existence without having some degree of a pre-sale. Like there was no way to be an insider and get early access 
to Bitcoin. The code was put out and it was like, boom, boom, run it on your computer. You'll get it. Right. Um, whereas Ethereum had a sale. And this is something I definitely should be more versed on um, than I already am. But from my knowledge, right, from people who I respect a ton and do a lot of their diligence and don't just say these things flippantly. Um, and I believe that you can just find this stuff. Um, but there was a lot of bank money that was put into Ethereum. Like some people call it JP Morgan coin. Um, Cause if I'm not mistaken, JP Morgan put a lot of money into Ethereum in the early days. And so once again, as everybody knows, you got to see where the money flows to see what's, what's really going on. And um, there was none of that kind of influence on Bitcoin. It was truly just code came out and then boom, people who adopted it, they reap the rewards unless they bought pizza with it, you know? And, um, and even then they still got a free pizza. It just may have cost a lot down the road when you do that, that math backwards. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the rationales. The other one being, and it was actually the CEO of Paxful, which is an exchange. Um, he actually, the other day, he came out and said, Hey, we're delisting Ethereum. We're not going to support Ethereum on our exchange anymore. And it's definitely going to cost us profits, but I fundamentally am, uh, am, misaligned, unaligned with Ethereum because all of the scams for the most part that have happened to people in this ecosystem have come from people creating tokens on Ethereum. Now, maybe that's a bit of a fallacious way to view what Ethereum is. Um, you know, it's like people saying, you know, that, that guns kill people. It's like, uh, I don't know, like, like the statement, no, people kill people. Gun is a tool to do that. You can kill somebody with a Hot Wheel. You know, are you going to ban <laughs> Hot Wheels? Now, it's much easier to do it with a gun, but fundamentally, it was a person who did it, not the gun. So similarly, Ethereum is not the issue in that situation, in my opinion, but it, it simply enables somebody to do something. And if you just allow people to build things and they build scams, can you really blame the thing that fundamentally uh, enables that? Um, but that's the other big reason that a lot of people are, are Bitcoin only is this idea that like, hey, no one is getting scammed because of things being built on Bitcoin. And it's, um, and at the same token, a lot of those same folks feel that everything that Ethereum is doing and then the offshoot coins that, that are built on uh, the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine, that they are all pulling liquidity away from Bitcoin. And so from that perspective, it's like, hey, we will, how far ahead in the race would we be in terms of getting to this place of really being a true globally relevant asset, not to say it's not already, but really pushing, you know, the market cap. And uh, there are people who just feel like that mission is being slowed down by people being distracted and putting their money into Ethereum, but the offshoots that are built on the Ethereum network. And then you could add in all these other networks that spun up trying to compete with Ethereum, whether it be a Solana or an Avalanche or a near protocol or anything like that. So I think that those are really the two arguments for the most part that come around, let alone then the third one being the immutability of Bitcoin in the sense that here are the rules and the parameters for it. There's going to be a 21 million supply of it. That's not going to change. And people aren't coming around every few years or every few quarters and making changes to the protocol. Um, and so that ossification is part of what gets people such confidence in it is that, Hey, we can't just change things about it the way that the federal reserve can just change interest rates. They can just change issuance supply. You know, they can decide to support an overnight repo or not. They can set up an extra repo facility or not. And that plays into the kind of manipulation of what's going on um, with the money supply, with the debt supply, all of that. 
And so a lot of the Bitcoin purists view that parallel in Ethereum is saying, okay, well, there's a centralized party of people guiding it, you know, in Vitalik, even though he's not the only one. Basically, he said Ethereum is trash. The price would collapse, you know, like these sort of things. They're changing the policies behind it. So those are typically the, the fundamental issues that I've seen or arguments that the Bitcoin purists make. That's really interesting. So basically what I got from that is Bitcoin is the truest decentralized coin because there was never, you know, a, a sale. And also it's, you know, it, it can't be tampered with. So, I mean, those are some pretty good points. And And one thing that you mentioned there at the start of your point was following the money to see what's really going on with things. And that's what the block gives us is transparency from what I understand. And it makes me wonder how did SBF and FTX, how'd they get away with the fraud that they were pulling off? Cause shouldn't, shouldn't this all be in the chain? People can just go in. Cause I watched uh, Kevin O'Leary talk to the, uh, you know, the Congress and, and he's saying, you know, where's my money, Sam? Mm-hmm. And he's like, it's gone. But Shouldn't anybody be able to go in and see the block transfers out of FTX? How did you pull that off? Basically, the reason that all of this was able to happen with FTX is because none of it was on chain, right? Like that's probably one of the big, bigger disconnects. And I think more people, that story is, is, is being amended properly for people to understand that. But uh, basically, all that FTX really was doing was acting like a trading desk and serving as a fiat on and off ramp for clients. So- why people like the FTX is because you could trade with hella high leverage. Um, they had gave you access to a very exotic, and when I say exotic, I mean low market cap coins. And so they are the most volatile because it takes less money to move the price more. So people would, you know, trade 10x, 15x, 20x leverage on these things. Um, and they allowed you to do that. Uh, now, eventually, they had to separate out FTX International from FTX US. Uh, and they were having a lot of these conversations with Congress. But yeah, the the reason that none of this was on uh, apparent ahead of time is because none of this was happening. The, the funds that the firm had and the funds from Alameda were never on chain. And I'll make the argument that they shouldn't, I'm not going to say they should have been on chain because that's not the role they were trying to play. Just like Coinbase does not do its trades on chain because if they did, there'd be a much higher cost unless they did it on something like a layer two uh, or some sort of other side chain, which is what we're seeing more so happen on networks like um, that are based on zero knowledge proofs like Starkware or things that are just built on roll-up architecture like Polygon. So that's really why there was no red herring or canary in the coal mine, as they say, uh, ahead of time to, to really give that heads up as far as what was going on. You think that we'll see some exchanges come out that are doing their trades on chain because of this? No, none of the none of the traditional ones. Because it's not really, let me not say never. I wouldn't expect to see it in the near term because the cost associated with doing it. And quite frankly, quite frankly, most exchanges are doing funny shit. 99% <laughs> of them. It's like to the, what extent are they doing funny shit? And yeah. they don't want people to see that. You know, it's just like Coinbase. From my knowledge. From my not, I could be entirely wrong about this, right? But it also goes back to one of those things. You can't believe somebody just because the CEO said it. CEO said it. Like, what was all the stuff that Sam Bankman-Fried was saying on his press tour post-collapse? 
What was Caroline saying in these interviews? What were the top people running it? And that's fundamentally the whole idea of, of crypto being trustless. You don't have to trust what these folks are saying. You can just look and say, okay, that is the fact. This data I see on chain. None of this other shit you're saying means a lick to me, but what I see in the data. And you can't do that with Coinbase. You can't do that with Kraken. You can't do that with Gemini. You cannot do that with KuCoin, with OKX, with any of these other exchanges, with Binance, with any of these folks. And so I don't think that there's any incentive other than PR for these companies to do it. But what's going to hurt the PR more? Not putting all of these things on chain, let alone the technical feasibility behind it and the scalability of it and the cost of it, or what it would look like if they actually did all the stuff on chain and then they you, you realize that they're not quite as collateralized as you thought, you know, or that they're doing extra things with it or that when you go to Coinbase and you buy Bitcoin, you don't, they just take that money and they hold it. And then when you need to withdraw the Bitcoin, they take from the Bitcoin they've already purchased and they send you what you withdraw. But at any given time, there are more claims on the tokens from their platform than there are, uh, than they hold. There's not a one-to-one from my knowledge. And most exchanges do not actually have a one-to-one, at least not on everything and not a hundred percent. So maybe they have 95% of what they should. Maybe they have 85%. In the case of Alameda, maybe they got like 5% of what they're supposed to have or FTX rather. But yeah, I just, for several reasons, don't think that we're going to see that anytime soon. I think what we will see are attestations, quote unquote, where periodically they say like, look, this is what we have sitting in a treasury somewhere, you know, and this is, this is how you can be confident that we're solvent because we have this much uh, money sitting in this wallet. I think that's the closest thing we'll get. Yeah. Like you should be able to go into the chain and see what kind of blocks have been transferred to these companies. No. Who do you bank with? Well, I use a Canadian bank up here, right? Do they show you? They show me numbers on the screen that says I have this much, this many dollars. Yeah. <laughs> if they're not doing that, why do, does anybody expect a market that's not even 15 years old that is fighting against headwinds consistently to be able to do that? Mm-hmm. If we're not holding banks to that standard, how the hell are we going to hold this thing that's the redheaded stepchild? to that standard. You follow what I'm saying? Absolutely. These are the sort of, you know, things. And, and um, my partner, her dad works for JP Morgan. Uh, he's been a banker basically his whole life. Um, and it's funny because I'll have conversations with bankers and they'll say shit like that. And I'll just be like, all right, well, y'all ain't doing that. And we know why <laughs> y'all not doing that. The IMF's not doing that. The World Bank ain't doing that. Why? Because it's all bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, that's my thing, though. Yeah. No, I just, you know, for me, I'm a, I'm an outsider looking into the space. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, from what I understand is transparency is the key with crypto. So it's, you know, for, for me to see these kind of things unfolding, I, I personally wonder how people who are in the space and are more technically gifted than I am didn't see this happening because, like, I have no clue. I don't know what's going on. I can't, man, I can't code anything, but I know that there are people out there that can read the chain and they can watch these movements and see these block transfers. And then I'm wondering like, how come they didn't see some funny business going on there? But it it makes sense if they're an exchange and that, and that's, you know, they weren't actually making the trades on chain. That totally makes sense to me. 
Yeah. And what's actually funny, though, is that a lot of exchanges, they do have to interact on chain at some point to like buy the Bitcoin. Because like you can't just Coinbase can't just buy its Bitcoin from FTX, who bought its Bitcoin from Binance, who bought their Bitcoin from where? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, in the case of like Bitcoin and Ethereum, they come from the people mining it. Like that's where the source is. And then they have to go buy it eventually. They don't do it all through the exchange. Sometimes OTC, it depends. But for that reason, there are still people who do on-chain forensics to some extent who can sometimes like look at abnormalities and say like, hey, I think there's some shenanigans happening over here. We'll see. And there were people doing that with FTX a few mm -hmm. days beforehand. And that's kind of what like set up the perfect condition for the collapse to happen as, as dramatically as it did, because it was a combination of a few people on Twitter saying like, hey, I was looking at some transfers. They have been moving funds from their wallet. Like, you know, because all exchanges do have an on-chain wallet, but they don't interact with it all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And so basically people were like, look, they're making a lot of transfers out of this wallet to this other one. And uh, and it's getting, it's getting low, you know? So like, are they finna re-up and put more in there? Like what's going on? But at that point, it's like, we're talking about within, you know, four or five days of the collapse happening. So that's only so much heads up time for people. And that's if you were like full on watching everything and you caught this particular tweet or this kind of, you know, red flag go up. But ultimately, it's like the whole scheme has been happening for far longer and it's already done at that point, really. Um, you know, so that's why there are some people who only deal with on-chain protocols like Aave, like MakerDAO like uh, compound and it's for those exact reasons like most of the trading i have ever done has been through a decentralized exchange something like uniswap or CalSwap. and part of that is because i just i want to be about what i say i care about and i care about being able to make a transaction and not have to go through an intermediary like that now granted uniswap is not not perfect uh, we all have to use something called MetaMask for the most part. If you're on Ethereum and it came out about two weeks ago, that consensus, the company who built MetaMask, and they're also kind of like, um, they're like the big behemoth. They're kind of like an institution in this space that they've been collecting user data through MetaMask, mm -hmm. you know, which is definitely against the, uh, you could say it's against the ethos, but at the same time, when you interact with the chain, everything you're doing is, you know, tracked on that chain. So them tracking some more information about you. It's different information, but the tracking of information is not necessarily against the ethos. It's the identifiability of personal information aside from the wallet that starts to go a little bit against the ethos. But um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's definitely interesting. Yeah, and it's not surprising that there will be bad actors in really anywhere. You think about regular money, fiat money, let's say, and how people can you know launder it and go through a whole bunch of different ways that the IRS can't even figure out where their money came from. So of course in crypto, it's going to be a similar thing. You know, somebody's going to find a way to make it very confusing. They've got lightning speed transactions. You could do, you know, a million in a day probably or whatever. So, I mean, it's going to be real deep and real hard to find where that money went. And I think what's interesting is today, um, it's December 22nd, SBF, he just got out on bail. So, mm -hmm. you know, he, he, he was saying he only had a hundred million dollars left in the bank or something down from 20 billion. He just got out $250 million on bail. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, where'd that money come from? Did he really lose it all in trading? 
or did he come up with some kind of scheme where he's, you know, transitioned it into some other wallets of some kind? And I think it's just, you know, it's a, it's a new ish industry. You know, Bitcoin has been around for a long time now, but not necessarily all the crypto and exchanges. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's going to be these pains for sure, but that's why I like talking to guys like you because you sort of see the future of this technology. And I wonder, you know, scams aside, there's going to be fraudsters everywhere. Where do you see sort of crypto going from here? Like where, where is, where does the opportunity still lie for, for this? I think the opportunities are still in creating ways for people to engage in financial services that otherwise have been denied to them for whatever reason, whether it be prejudice uh, or discrimination or just lack of access to it. Like literally it is not around in that local town, that local village, whatever it may be. And I think that that's huge. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember in, in high school, maybe it was ninth grade. I learned about, you know, micro banking and the issues there in a lot of foreign countries where you have a farmer who's just trying to get a hundred dollar loan and they go to the bank, you know, and the bank is, Oh, we can loan you this hundred dollars, but they might be doing it at 30% interest. You know, mm -hmm. something wild. And we're talking about literally dollars for these people. But that's how disconnected we can be. You know, I was, I was spend $5 last year. I was spending $50, $80 on a transaction fee. Like, how can someone really claim to understand what people on that side of the spectrum in the world are going through when we live in such privilege over here where I'm spending $1,000 on a fucking NFT? Mm -hmm off of my thesis that one day it's going to make me more money and be higher in value, which could be drastically wrong. And I have been wrong many times. I will be wrong again. Right. But that is still one of the core pillars and, and promises. And really it's been working thus far of crypto is DeFi trustless capital markets, where if you have a MetaMask wallet and you have access to a decentralized exchange or one of these protocols, you can interact. You can go get a loan. You can, you know, buy this other asset. But as it stands right now, there is still a bit of a disconnect between that whole decentralized finance world and the reality that you still have to get in there some sort of way. And banks and centralized exchanges are still the bottleneck unless someone gives you the initial form factor, right? Whether let's assume it's a stable coin or Bitcoin or Ethereum, you still have to get crypto to interact with these systems. And some of them are improving, some of them are improving and having integrations with fiat on-ramps like MoonPay um, or you know any of these other ones, but that still requires access to a credit card or a debit card, you know, and 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 those are still the bottlenecks ultimately because you know a lot of people who are putting money into this space still want it to be tracked and they still want it to be cataloged in the traditional way which I'm not saying fully is a bad thing, but in my mind, in a perfect world, crypto, as we move post-cash, right? We're already post-cash, mm -hmm. still allows for that anonymity or, that, or rather that privacy that comes with cash transactions. Because if that goes away, then I don't think people really understand what it means that every transaction you ever have in your life is stored and logged and used as a reference point to influence how the state interacts with you or whatever the, the empower entity is. So I think that's one of the biggest ones and what I am really passionate about seeing uh, really prosper down the road. And <clears throat> aside from that, 
is just the digitization or the tokenization of anything. Because ultimately, when we move post-cash and we move into a space where we're more and more and more and more digitally first, right? I think in some ways it's hard to imagine how more digitally oriented could we become. And it's like, oh, there's a ways to go. (laughs) There's a ways to go, my friend. And uh, like it or not, I don't like it. I don't love it. I'm conflicted half the time when I see all this money I'm putting in NFTs, but I'm like, oh, I can't pretend this ain't where this shit is going. So it's like, that's how you Mm -hmm. really create wealth is you get ahead of major trends. You take the risk. And when you're right, you make like illogical money from being right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but most people are wrong when they try to make that bet or their timing is off or they, you know, they're impatient to really see it play out. So I think that fundamentally that's the other key component of this technology is, hey, how do we take Joe's home and how do we put that asset on chain so that you can do these sort of things that I just mentioned as far as DeFi goes, get a loan, right? Get access to capital, use uh, your home as collateral, whatever you might be, or maybe you just want to trade it to somebody and you just want the the transaction to be done. And you don't want to have to deal with lawyers and closing and all this other stuff that can slow the process down one, but two, incur an extra two, three, four, 5% of what your, your, your profits would have been because of these other fees that go into that process that really are administrative fees. Uh, I'm not saying we're going to get to a place where you're not going to still have somebody assess the value of the home and do all of these other things, but the literal transaction of it, the fact that, all right, right now in the database somewhere at somebody's bank, Joe owns the house. And then when you sell the house, it gets transferred over to being somebody else's name of ownership. The way we do it right now makes no sense, but it's been what's possible. It makes far more sense to have that house tokenized. And when you actually make the sale of the house, you just transfer the token to somebody. And that becomes what represents the ownership aside from you like habitating in the home and all of that. But those sort of things. And a lot of people, I think, miss that when they hear about NFTs. All they think about is Board Ape Yacht Club. And there was a trailer they put out today or yesterday for like the new, another activation. It's like a storyline they're building out from Yuka Labs called The Trial of Jimmy. And literally it ends with the, the anus of a monkey. <laughs> so now when people... And I think that shit is like so trash. Um, that's what a lot of people have an association with. With NFTs now, it's going to be literally a monkey's ass. And yeah. I think that to some degree, like these, those dudes, those dudes are bright guys. They get that and they know that, and so they're leaning into, you know, that shtick almost. But fundamentally, from a technology standpoint, like Bluetooth, like internet, like Wi-Fi, it's a technology. NFTs, non fungible tokens to be able to tokenize and therefore make tradable and liquid any asset you can conceive of. Now, some are still easier to transform into that form factor, but in theory, you can translate anything, even a a non-tangible thing like IP, like ideas, right? Uh, And we're just so early in it that we haven't seen that, but there are already people starting to tokenize real estate. That's gonna be another big one. Imagine you, you, you you flip houses once again, like most people are not in high volume transactions at these dollar amounts, but there are a select group of people who are, right? They may buy and sell several homes in a year, right? Most people are only buying a handful in their entire life. And so having this additional liquidity and this mechanism to really say and look at a record of all of the history of that home from the work that was done on it 
to who paid for it, when the taxes were due, liens, all these other things in one place versus the process now where you have to go call up all these different courthouses and all these different offices and try to get the records and why the record's not out of, up to date. And I go look in the MLS or in the system and there's, a, there's something missing here and all this other stuff. This is a solution around a lot of that. And we're just so early that we're focused on the monkey asses instead of how we can take all these real world assets and add a whole nother level of liquidity to them and ability for people to then interact with those assets in a financialized manner should they want to do that. Um, and I definitely know for a fact we will see those things. And when we see more of that, NFTs will start making more sense to more people. Yeah, I think you framed that really well. And what I'm trying to wrap my head around is how the technology can integrate into our lives. Because, you know, I'm not the most technological guy. I I can do some things, but I'm not, like I said, I can't code or anything like that. And, but I do, I am smart enough to realize that as each generation comes in and starts going into adulthood, they sort of take over the trends and they sort of set the stage for, for what's going to happen. And you can ask anybody, you know, who's like, I'm like, you know, thirties and I see these kids that are like five flying through iPads. And I'm like, man, when I was five, I was like out like pulling weeds, like killing beetles. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) These kids are just like ripping through technology like it's nothing. So to me, it seems like such a crazy idea to tokenize my house and sell it that way. But I think by the time these kids are older, they're going to be so engulfed in technology. Like this is just going to be their lives. I think that it's going to be more logical to them. And it, it certainly could be something that happens you know in 20 years from now just based on generational changes and and how comfortable the how comfortable they're going to be with technology um which brings me to you know like you're you're more in this world than i am but i wonder if we could talk a little bit about web3 and i know that you uh i saw one of your shorts you talked about ai agents and non-fungible yeah. intelligence I'm yeah. just like, man, what is this? Like, this is just next level, like AI, NFIs. Like, I don't know, maybe break a little bit of this down for me because I don't know what's going on with this. 100%, 100%. And um, just to, to, to put a button on the prior uh, line of thought, it's exactly like you said. The best investors, you have to look at where things are going, not where things are. And that's the biggest disconnect. And I have a son now, right? He's almost one. He'll be one next month. And I have to now think about in a much more, the most tangible way I've ever had to about the future. And I see the kids in the restaurants on the iPads at two years old. They can't even speak, utter full sentences, but they can, they're using an iPad. And aside from like the health challenges that that's going to present to them, most likely the psychological change that that's fostering. Mm-hmm. They're already living most of their life on the computer. I'm living most of my life on the computer right now, but most of my life I lived in real life. I'm using these tools for work, for business, to make more money so I can do more things in real life. These kids are just living their lives on these fucking screens. And so where does this go down the road? And naturally it goes to everything being digital. And if it's not digital, it just doesn't really compute to them. Like they'll, they'll live real life things, but... I think that from that framework, it's much easier to see 
how these building blocks set that up so that they're not just kids on iPads, but these are men, women in their teens, their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, living their life. And what do they expect from an interfacing standpoint, from a convenience and usability standpoint? And it is far different than what we already do. Um, now, as far as AI goes, AI is already very prevalent in our lives. You saw that short because of AI, because it knows that, you know, we follow each other. You're subscribed to me on YouTube. We've engaged with each other. And it's basing all these other videos that you've seen and said, hey, this seems to be a good time to show Joe this particular video. We'll see if he takes the bait, so to so, so to say. And I write titles to work with that AI to know, all right, if I call it this particular thing, how will the algorithm read what's in it and how will it serve it up? Um, anything that you do on any social media platform is AI. Spotify is AI, how it knows what song to play next, right? Uh, automatically adjusting lights in your home, all these other things. And AI is uh, sometimes a little misnomer because in most situations, it's just machine learning algorithms, right? Um, it just takes a bunch of data and it finds patterns in the data. Whereas AI, and what most people think about is generalized intelligence, which is like the iRobot, the Black Panther, like the, the Tony Stark robot where you just talk to it and it just does things. And like, it just knows exactly what you mean, context-wise. It can just do anything. That has not been released to the public yet. I'm not going to say it doesn't exist. It has not been released to the public yet. Um, just also for fun facts, context. Anytime you see like the latest and greatest innovation come to the public, the military and the military-industrial complex, so that includes contractors, people like that, uh, R&D folks in that space, they've usually had it for about, 15 to 25 years at that point before the consumer public gets it. So if we got iPhones in 2010, they had iPhones in the eighties, basically. I just some for people to keep in mind, same thing with this fusion ship. They just told y'all they just figured out. Like, oh, okay. Right. Either way, I know it's not the point of this conversation. I appreciate you letting me go on those little tangents, man. Go ahead, um, man. <laughs> <laughs> so the non-fungible intelligence effectively is a patent that has come from this company called Altered State Machine. And they're based out of New Zealand and they're a tech company, uh, which is part of a larger umbrella company called Futureverse, which used to be called Centrality back in the day. We won't get too deep, but basically about seven, eight years ago, there was a guy by the name of Aaron McDonald in New Zealand who started a fund of about $500 billion. He started to acquire different companies that he felt would be necessary in building out key infrastructure points to really create a metaverse. And so some of that is communications-based, some of it is identity-based, some of it is payments, some of it is entertainment IP, some of it is gaming. And he started buying up, basically created this big incubator, like a venture studio almost. And then starting to identify who's the strongest teams, who looks like they're really developing something that's like gonna stand the test of time and be critical in this whole thing. And he started to bring them under one roof so that they could lean on each other's innovations. So that the whole thing, could build faster. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they have now officially consolidated eight different companies at a minimum that they've announced so far. It's something called the Futureverse. And Alter State Machine is one of those companies. And Alter State Machine is the whole AI component. And so what they're doing is making it so that you can buy a brain, is what they call it. And the agents, basically, an agent is this idea of having some autonomous agent 
that can go do things on your behalf. Uh, they can play in a game, right? They can be a soccer player in a game. They can be a boxing player in a game. Um, they can be a trading uh, assistant for you. They can be companion in some sort of metaverse world. They can do a lot of things. And to be frank, very direct, m- most of this utility is not live yet. It is early stages. They have shown demos and prototypes, and they have a lot of this core infrastructure working at this point, and they are rolling it out. This is not something that you build in a year, but they have built the fundamental pieces of this for the last six years. And so now they're getting to the point where they're having consumer-facing products. Um, One of their partnerships is with FIFA, um, and they have a game called the AFA Football League. And the whole game is AI playing against each other. So each character, it's a 4v4 game. Each character is an agent. An agent is a form and a brain. A form is basically, uh, it's another NFT, but the form is basically what the brain goes into. So it can act it out. Just like in real life, Joe, you are the form. And then you have your consciousness that inhabits the form and allows the form to do things. But without the form, the consciousness, there's in a way a limit to what the consciousness can do or how it can actually interact with the world more directly. So it's the same kind of parallel there. And the idea is instead of when you use something like a open AI's chat GPT, you're using someone else's AI and you just get the result from it. The difference here is that you would be able to own the AI. And so in that way, you are able to own this one, let's call it this algorithm. And the algorithm might be a certain way by default when you acquire it. But what they have done is they have given each of these brains a certain set of traits out the gate. It has a genome, it has a memory tree. And so with this genome, it basically dictates qualities like a starting baseline for this brain in terms of its strengths and weaknesses. So chat GPT might be really good at writing poems, but it might be really bad at uh, writing scripts. I'm just giving an example. Both of those are writing, but, you know, or rather better example, it's really good at text. It's really bad. It can't create images. So it has a strength in one category, has a weakness in another. So these brains are the same way. And what they've done is basically lay out um, categories in this genome that developers can then tap into when they build on the ASM protocol to enable their apps to read this information and say, okay, if a brain has, let's call it speed, temperament, and um, coordination as traits, what does that look like in a video game versus what does that look like in a trading environment versus what does that look like in a um, consumer service chat situation? Does that make sense? Yeah. I'll elaborate more. I know it's like sort of kind of, but when you buy the brain, you now own that baseline algorithm. And now you can go ahead and you can train it and you can develop it to be better in certain areas to suit the need that you may want. And so then let's say that uh, they have these AI gems that are powered by GPUs right now, and maybe that'll change down the road, Um, but it's the same way the stable diffusion works right now. It's tapping into GPUs. Any of these things that are doing generative art, art, you're using GPUs, and there's a lot of people using them right now. And I have not heard anybody complain about the energy consumption. So once again, it's about narrative. Um, so you own it, but that also means that you can take it and you can put it in other forms and in other applications and environments because alter state machine is a platform that people can build on same way that people can build on unity to build video games. They can build on Unreal engine. You can deploy your apps to the iOS ecosystem. 
You can deploy it to the Android ecosystem. Altered State Machine is a protocol platform. So down the road, if you're a developer, you can build an application and you can do it with ASM in mind, knowing that you want your application to be compatible. Now, the most straightforward example of this right now are video games, where you can be a game developer and say, hey, I want the ability for people to be able to take and plug in this AI into the game, but how do we want that to work? What do we want the AI to influence? Because you still have to set the parameters around it. But at a fundamental level, if you own that AI, you now can move that AI through these different worlds, different environments. And what I'm doing is building it so that I actually have an ability to create franchises effectively, where, uh, because there's only a finite number of these core brains, and then you have kind of an offshoot of it. And so if you own some of these core ones, and there's a whole way to breed them and splice them, same way that people do with dogs, I want a purebred Doberman, or I want this, that, and a third, well, you need to go source the genetics for it, look at its you know traits and qualities, and then you breed it to get what you want, and then you sell it to people. And so the same idea. You may want an AI to help you manage your portfolio down the road. How do you choose? Well, you're going to look at the performance of these different AIs. And then maybe you find one um, that's done really well. And you say, hey, I want you to breed an AI uh, algorithm for me that's optimized for managing my portfolio. And so then, boom, I go to the lab. I, I breed this brain for you. Like, literally, you can do this with ASM. And I sell it to you. And now you own one. And now you do whatever you want to with. So without us spending another two hours talking about this, because there's a lot there. And uh, that's why I made the video. That's like super high level, the idea of non-fungible intelligence. So just like non-fungible tokens, each one is unique. Non-fungible intelligence, each AI is unique. Wow, that's really interesting. And like the first thing that comes to mind for me is algos. So we're talking about algos, but we already have algos in the market. So you, you get somebody like JP Morgan, for example, they have their own algos that that run on, you know, whatever technical analysis trends they want to use. Perhaps they could decide they wanted to sell that algo as an NFI is what you're suggesting. Yep, exactly. If they but, wanted other people to have it, if they wanted to sell it at a premium. But if other people have it, if enough people have it, that could influence the market in whichever way their algos are trading, no? 100%. Yeah. 100%. But, just like if they, you know, there's a stage where they're not investing in Bitcoin and then there's a stage where they are, when they start investing in it, they influence the market. Because mm -hmm. it it's a <laughs> it's a whole new can of worms if you start buying a, you know, a algo from somebody who understands how that algo works, you probably wouldn't want to use it. Almost sounds like this could become something like a, like I know when crypto was, it's, I mean, a lot of people still say that crypto should be 5% of your portfolio, something like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll say, you know, have an NFI run 5% and see what happens, you know, have an aggressive one, have a, you, you know, medium, have a, have a uh, low risk one, whatever, mm -hmm. and then do 80% by yourself. And maybe it could be something like that in the future. I think that's that's really interesting. I've never really heard anybody talk about the ability to have an algorithm for yourself. I just have this nagging thought that you need to look in the space. Don't ignore it. Mm -hmm. Make sure you stay somewhat current and have a slight idea of what's going on, even if I don't, you know, fully understand the code or whatever. But um I really appreciate like 
everything you've done here. And I think you've really opened my eyes to a lot of the, the workings, the inner workings of the space. So I just wanted to say thanks for that. And I know you have your own content channels and stuff. So I thought we could just, uh, before we cap off the show here, if you want to just share with any listeners or viewers where they can find your content, because I know you go in a lot more in depth in some of the stuff than we have here today. No, no, man. Thank you as always, Joe. You are a great host, great listener. I know I definitely start rambling at times, so I have to like reel it back because I'm usually just the one asking the questions. Um, but yeah, man, I, I think you're right. I think it's important for people to keep a holistic view, just like I keep in touch, almost like you do, with what's going on in the traditional market because that leads everything else and definitely more macro stuff. But um, I know I need to mm-hmm. up my exposure a little bit to the traditional side of things just so I'm a little more balanced out. But uh, to me, at the same time, I'm like, yo, I'm doing this to make as much money as possible. And there's more upside a lot of times in the riskier things, even though there's more downside. So um, just trying to up my diligence game. Uh, so it's like, it's really like, oh, yeah, buy Amazon, you know, oh, buy Tesla. I'm like, all right, well, let's see how low it goes. And then I'll get it. Same way that I think people should look at crypto. You know, like, let's see how low it goes. And then if it, you know, lines up and it's a good time to jump in. Um, as far as my channel, uh, YouTube is definitely the main place I would say to go. And you can just search Savon Springer and it'll point you to the channel. That's the name of the channel. But you'll see, you'll know you're in the right place. You'll see a bunch of really, you know, clickbaity type uh, thumbnails and all of that bright colors just to optimize for the algorithm. I was very against it, but I was like, I got to do what I got to do to get these views, man. And it's uh, it's nothing that goes against my ethics. It's just, you know, I wish I could <laughs> make the style a little bit different. But um, but yeah, so YouTube, there's a lot of stuff. I do a combination of keynotes, which are scripted so that I, I hit the points and I don't ramble. Uh, and those are really going more in depth on very specific topics. They're usually between 15 and 25 minutes. And I do interviews as well. And those are just like this is here um, with folks. And I would also recommend subscribing to the Substack that we have. That way, if you like to read these things or you want to get them directly to your inbox, and that Substack is nativeassets.substack.com. And aside from that, I'm on Twitter at Native Assets, and I'm on LinkedIn, Savon Springer. So uh, if I can ever be of any help, answer any questions, you just want to get in touch, or if you want to work with me, uh, I take on clients, I advise, I consult. That's from individuals to corporates. Uh, I have a course, I have a book out. Book is The Blockchain Blueprint, A Practical Guide to Crypto in an Impractical Age of Fiat. Most of it in there is aged well. Some of it's not so much, uh, given what happened earlier this year, but I'm not going to change it because that's how I was when I wrote it. Back in the day, you couldn't change books. So uh, it's going to be in there. And then we have a course as well, The Blockchain Blueprint, which is for anybody from, you know, you know nothing about crypto to you want to get involved, you want to start trading it, you really want to understand how it works. And that is available at nativeassets.co. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for, so much for coming on the show. And uh, we'll have to do this again in another six months or something like that. Yeah, we'll see where we're at with things, man. Thank you again, Joe. Yeah, thank you. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.